This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful, creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? In the early 2000s, Rocco Despirito served me a meal at his restaurant Union Pacific that changed the course of my life because it opened up some new part of my brain about what food could actually be. And I am hardly the only one. Fans of Rocco's aren't just folks who have loved him on a billion TV shows, his radio program, or his New York Times bestselling and award-winning cookbooks, but also his fellow chefs. When Rocco's peers speak of him and his cooking, it's with a sense of awe. Prepping for this interview, one very high-profile chef who will be revealed momentarily made sure that I told Rocco that he changed the game for everyone both in the kitchen and in front of the camera. But you say something like that to Rocco and the man blushes, maybe even cringes a little bit because even after working in restaurants since he was 10 years old, he is still just a shy food and family loving kid who is genuinely surprised that people are paying attention and taking him seriously. Welcome to season one, episode 11 of Tinfoil Swans, Rocco Despirito and the Very Bad Word. Hello, Rocco. I'm so glad to see your face. I wish it was in person. Cat Kinsman, Rocco Despirito on a podcast. Can you imagine? It's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> I was just listening to Dave Chang's podcast this morning, and he had our mutual friend, Ryan Koppelman, on there. I texted Dave to say how special it was, and I said what I was doing this morning and talking to you. So I usually have a question I start out with, but I want to start out with a little emotional bomb here because I love to turn your face red and let you know how much you're appreciated. But he said, please let Rocco know. I think he helped change the whole game from Union Pacific to the restaurant, criminally underappreciated. He just really, really wanted you to know how much you matter to chefs like him and to culinary world at large. But to me, you can't be told that enough. That's so nice. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate him a lot. I think he's also a major game-changing figure and certainly has done a lot to propel the industry forward. And y'all were both best new chefs. Not were, you remain so because the whole thing with like best new chefs is you are forever in the family. You cannot shake us. You cannot get rid of us. No one's trying. No one's trying to get rid of you guys. We love it. We love it. (laughs) I think it's still an accolade that matters, but I want to rewind for a sec. Rocco Despirito, who were you when you were 10 years old? 10-year-old Rocco was mostly interested in playing with friends, what was going to happen after school, reading the book Scruples, which had just come out. Oh, oh, that was a naughty one, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was being passed around like diamonds <laughs> that were just found in a mine underneath their homes. And I think maybe Saturday Night Fever had appeared at that point in my life. And I just started getting into cooking at like local pizzerias, nothing crazy. 
So I sort of knew a little bit about cooking. I obviously knew a lot about it from my mom and watching her and my whole family cook. But on the professional side, knew a little bit about, you know, I sort of knew how to open number 10 cans. I knew what a number 10 can was and I knew how to grate mozzarella. Okay, not all 10-year-olds know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was sort of just a beginning interest in cooking. I wasn't really anything serious about it yet, but I was riding a bike pretty seriously at that point. I had a Schwinn with a banana seat and a sissy bar and chopper handlebars. I was pretty excited about that. I remember because that was one of the first times I ever invested in something, built it, and then sold it for a profit. So I was interested in a lot of things average 10-year-old kids were interested in. Nothing crazy. You say that, and yet you're working in a restaurant. I was just babysitting, you know. Babysitting is very serious work. People don't understand. Taking care of kids is a huge responsibility. It was the 70s, though. And I'm like, wait, I am eight or 10 or whatever, and you're trusting me with your infant? I'm surprised they had a babysitter. Usually they just let him run around like a feral cat. So I'm just thinking like kids today at 10, they're not working in restaurants and there are laws against that. Rightfully so. They're not in the professional world working. They shouldn't be doing that. But I also took care of a woman named Henrietta Adams. Great name, by the way, for a woman who was born in 1870-something. Wow. She was 78 years old. She was homebound, and she lived in my neighborhood, and I shopped for her every day. And so it was sort of like a custodian to her, and she was unable to get out of bed mostly, so I did that as well. And she would give me the change, you know, whatever the change was from $5. And I did that until she passed away, which was really interesting because she had incredible stories. And she was born 100 years earlier. Think about speaking to a person who was around for the Civil War almost. Yeah. It's pretty wild, right? That I'm old enough to have remembered a person who was that old. But she was super nice. And to this day, I don't think I've ever met a person like her. She talked about normal things, average sort of everyday things, but also the invention of the light bulb, you know, electric light appearing in her home, that kind of thing. I was overhearing a conversation in the office with some lovely colleagues, but who were younger than me. And we were doing all this archival research for Food and Wine. And they're looking at all the things about the Food and Wine Classic that started in 1983. And they're like, wait, you had to send away for how did people get tickets it says call here how did people get like airplane tickets how do they get concert tickets and i was like well back in mamaw's day here <laughs> like, i remember the first lollapalooza i went and got in line we'd camp out at the box office yeah and so i'm thinking like that to me is the like how did you get by without that thing it just didn't exist i think about this actually a lot with culture like you care about music and stuff we had to go and kind of dig through crates and figure out all of these things and now you just have to go online and do it. And we really had to sort of fight for what our tastes are. It's not like people were also out there talking about their favorite restaurants on the internet. And so you had to go and do these things. You had to buy guides that were printed a year ago. So their information was not always reliable. I remember when the Zagat guide came out, it was such a huge incredibly reliable source of information because they printed it twice a year, I believe, if I remember correctly. And it's a funny culture gap that has happened within our lifetimes, and I really appreciate it. But also restaurants, to get back to this part of it, it wasn't the same thing. I mean, there's C and B seen kind of restaurants that maybe come through word of mouth and stuff, but it wasn't the same kind of cultural thing that it is now. Talk to me about restaurant culture in New York while you're growing up. What kind of places you're going out to? And I know that some of this has to go beyond 
down when you were 10. So we can move forward in your life if you want to. But what is your relationship to restaurants growing up? In my early days, let's call that 10 to 16, 17, before I had a tiny bit of independence, we were really not allowed to go to restaurants. It was a bad word in our house because we were so proud of the home cooking and all the food growing we did and food preserving and basically our culture of growing, harvesting, preserving, and seeking out ingredients all year long. We live this farmer's lifestyle. So that's basically 24-7, 365 obsession with food. And you're always working on the next moment where you're going to acquire something to do with food. So when you live that lifestyle, you don't really need to go out to restaurants because there's always food at home. And of course, when you have mom, dad, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather who all cook, there's lots of delicious food. And going to a restaurant was really reserved for major special occasion, like a graduation, and even not always then. And that was considered a day off for the family and such a big deal that even the mom and the matriarch of the family shouldn't be cooking that day. Even they were given the day off. They get to sit down at some yeah, point? Yeah, got to sit down, yeah. And they didn't, didn't even have to argue over the bill. That was always my dad's job for some reason. But we always had fun. You know, when we went out to restaurants, we would really make sure we had a great time because spending money for food was such a crazy concept to them that they really milked it for everything that they had. So we got the coffee, the Viennese table, all kinds of silliness. And there were usually restaurants that would cater to the Italian-American community in Queens and Brooklyn. And I remember traveling to Brooklyn for a restaurant was always considered a special occasion. And then traveling to Manhattan was like just outrageous. That was like <laughs> when you really had lost your mind. And usually that was my mom and myself because most people just couldn't get on board with the concept of traveling all the way to Manhattan. It's another galaxy. You can't just go there without preparing. But some of my best restaurant experience ever happened just exploring Manhattan, thinking I was walking into a Chinese restaurant, ended up being a Japanese restaurant, which is, of course, as we all know now, completely different. But we discovered lots of cool things. And then fast food really came into its own in the 70s and 80s. And we were, of course, we're not allowed to eat that. So I guess if you break my restaurant experience, my childhood or adolescent restaurant experience into three categories, it was like the forbidden, the truly forbidden, and the <laughs> almost illegal experience of eating at a McDonald's, which my mom and I would do on her own in secret with towels over our heads because <laughs> we were so ashamed and weren't sure who'd see us. And so it was, it was interesting, but it was always a time of like just pure excitement and joy and it made any moment feel extremely special and fun. So while you're doing this, do you have any notion that there's a place in there for you? None at all. I really did not know. I think at that age, I still was intending to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer so badly for so long. I remember when I decided to get into the restaurant business, intentionally at around 14 years old. <laughs> As opposed to accidentally. Yeah, not accidentally. <laughs> I remember having a very serious conversation with my mom and sort of asking if it was okay that I give up my lawyer dreams, my attorney dreams and get into the restaurant business. And she, of course, was super nice and good natured about it and said, of course, whatever makes you happy. So that wasn't the argument I expected it to be. But no, I didn't until about 14, 15, 16, when I worked at a pretty serious restaurant that made their own head cheese, for example. Whoa. That's how serious it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first day on the job, there was a pile of pig's head 
heads that had been boiled and they were turning it into head cheese as I spoke. I remember walking into that scene, which was not something I was totally unprepared for growing up Italian and watching my entire family raise animals for food. It was called Sulza in this restaurant because it was a German restaurant. And I made the vinaigrette that went with it. So I had a really big part of that dish. I was very proud of the uh, Cornichon vinaigrette. I didn't really think it was for me for a long time. And again, long time is relative because I started so young. So I guess at the appropriate time, 1617, when most people start to think about what they're going to do for a living, that's when I realized it could be a career for me. And I met a guy named Jimmy, who was a CIA student, and he was working in the same restaurant as us for his internship, or externship, as they call it. Boy, did he sell a story. I mean, he sold being a chef like being Mick Jagger. And he really lived the life, and he looked like he was having fun, and he was always partying, and he had cars, and he had mobility and independence, and he looked like he was having fun all the time. He was always laughing. And so Jimmy was one of my first sort of chef influences, and he made it seem super glamorous. And he talked a lot about what was happening in New York City. And that's sort of when I I was like, oh, New York City, that's right. I can go explore there someday. In the media at the time, what are you seeing about chefs? Like, do you watch Jacques? Do you watch Julia? Are you watching any of these shows, reading any of these magazines? Like, what does a, a chef look like to you? It's a really interesting question because at that time in the media, professional chefs were never portrayed. And the only chefs that were on TV were Jacques and Julia and Graham Kerr, who I love, the Galloping Gourmet. And in print media, books, magazines, newspapers, here and there a review, but no chefs were ever mentioned. So I didn't really know that there was a media life for professional chefs. I don't think there was at that time, but I never put those two worlds together. I didn't think they, they intersected at all. Nor did I care. I didn't think of a career in in the food world as a media job, as it is now, very much a media job. So it didn't occur to me that that was something to strive for for that reason. I imagine a person who's just getting into the field now is clearly thinking there's a cooking side to this and a media side to this, or maybe not even a cooking side. I'm not even sure what people think these days, because it seems like it's all media all the time. But yeah, that didn't exist back then. That didn't happen until... I think Wolfgang Puck and the tail end of the 90s where chefs were really starting to become household names, TV figures, media figures were in print and in magazines all the time. One of the first major pieces of chef coverage that I saw was an article about Jonathan Waxman and Jams. I believe it was in Newsday, which is a big local newspaper. For New York, a local newspaper probably has 3 million customers. And it was a picture of him in a kimono. And I believe it was on the cover of the lifestyle section, which was, you know, a huge jump for any chef at that time. I think it was the late 80s. That was a major moment of seeing chefs in being celebrated in the media. Yeah, Food Network starts like 93, 94. Yeah, and don't forget, it took Food Network 10 solid years before anyone even knew what it was or cared. I was recently watching some very early programming on it where our legendary food and wine editor, Peter Prestcott, is sitting there looking like James Lipton, wearing like the jacket with the ascot and like this very fancy accent and introducing the Food Television Network, but then introducing the Food and Wine Classic in a segment by Julia Child at the Classic and leading into this demo of hers from the 90s where she's making a quiche Lorraine. It's incredible. I have hours of this kind of footage. But it's such a different thing from a few years later, we have Emerald Bamming on the screen and people are personalities in there. And you're in that very early wave of people who are, it's not just the restaurant, it's the person in there too. And you're in this first wave of it. So other than like the stand and stir kind of shows, it's a wildly different landscape than we have now. Can you talk a 
about seeing folks you know in the industry go on there and then taking that leap yourself? In the early days, from my memory, I was working at a restaurant, so I think building Union Pacific, maybe, or even earlier than that. And an early friend was Sarah Moulton. She was on Food Network every night. And I think I knew her from the Julia Child days because I used to assist Julia Child at Boston University where I was a teaching assistant. Wait, what? I, well, I lived in Boston and went to school at Boston University. And of course, Julia Child was a visiting professor there. And so was Jacques Pepin. Yeah, so I had to assist them. I didn't have to. I really loved assisting them. That would sometimes involve going to Julia's house and getting equipment and buying things and all kinds of stuff. We had a very warm, comfortable relationship. And she asked me to be on many, many times. I think it was Tonight with Sarah Moulton or something like that. And I think Robin Leach was still a part of the Food Network at that time. I think he was a founding member and he hosted almost everything. And I remember it was very much focused on people with real life cooking skills and real life people who were highly regarded for their chef skills in real life. And they were asked to come on Food Network. And then I think as the Food Network grew and became competitive with entertainment television, if you guys remember... We still had TV that was mostly educational back then. Even Bravo was mostly educational back then. Bravo was this high-minded network that was all about the arts. There was a turn, and I think a lot of chefs like Emeril, for example, who was very highly regarded in real life, who was one of the country's greatest chefs, was asked to turn on the entertainment factor and become Elvis, which he did very successfully. And he had a sitcom. People don't remember that he had a sitcom called Emerald exclamation points. I do remember that. Yeah. So a lot of chefs were very naturally able to become entertainers. And for some other chefs, it was more difficult. I remember there was a lot of talk about media training and Food Network would provide training and ask you to do a lot of practice runs in front of a camera. And we thought it was a lot back then. It's really a lot now. Obviously, Emerald was a massive character and was really funny in real life. And so it was very easy for him to turn on the BAM kind of charm for TV. How was that for you? Because you and I both notoriously anxious people. <laughs> For me, it was always very difficult. To this day, I have a hard time understanding how a cooking show needs to be entertaining. I think it needs to be educational. I watch cooking shows to learn how to do new things and interesting techniques. To this day, I still look at videos. I, I'm a huge consumer of food videos and beverage videos and cooking videos. I love them still to this day. And if they're not teaching me something in the first three seconds, I'm on to the next. So the ones that are designed to be super entertaining need to have George Carlin level comedians. To keep me interested, the, the, the level of funny needs to be very high if it's not going to teach me something about food. But I don't think, I think the rest of the world consumes food TV in a very different way. It's like a 70-30 mix now of entertainment versus information or maybe 80-20. And that's kind of average across the industry. That's my sense of it. But how was it for me? It was very difficult because I was always, and I still am, a very serious student of cuisine. I was raised in a world where Food was serious. Cooking was serious. Everything about the restaurant industry was serious. You had to have like your jacket buttoned all the way up to here where it is right now. Could not be like this. That was not acceptable. The fact that I don't have a neckerchief on right now is upsetting me. My hair is not combed well enough. You can't see him, but he looks perfect. I was raised in a very serious chef world. It was all the old guard from Europe, and those guys were serious as heck about what we did. There was no time to mess around. There was no time for joking. Now, since watch some of those guys become very loose and easy, like Danielle Balut, who was serious as a heart attack for the first 20 years of his career, who now appears like this charismatic, fun-loving guy. But I can assure you, in the kitchen, he's very serious, and he used to be much more serious. So big changes happen. I think when you let people into your everyday life, 
when you let characters like Chef become part of your everyday life, there's a certain amount of laughter that is expected to come with it and entertainment that's expected to come with it. I've never understood it, and I still have a hard time understanding it. It's always difficult for me, just like it is for you, Kat, to walk into a room and try to be entertaining. I can do it. it definitely batteries are drained quickly. We'll be back with more from Rocco Despirito after the break. This episode of Tinfoil Swans from Food & Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. As for freshly sliced sweet bees, honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Rocco Despirito. And I'm thinking of this particular time when I'm starting to hear about you and even more hearing about Union Pacific, because that was like a holy grail place for me. So I moved to New York in 1996. And I just always really loved food. I mean, my mother, who she's gone now, but I even talked with her about this when she was alive. Like, she didn't like cooking. Here's the thing about my mother. She loved eating. Like, she loved sort of being at a meal and eating, but she didn't care about food and grow up Italian-American and all this. And it wasn't until kind of my dad brought home this Maher Joffrey cookbook, Invitation to Indian Cooking, and it completely changed our lives. It changed what we ate at home. I'm like, there is a whole different thing happening out there. We didn't go to a whole lot of restaurants, but I read about them. When I read about them when I was broke. I read about them. They were aspirational to me. My dad would come to Baltimore where I was in school and we would like figure out like, what is this Szechuan restaurant that we can't get where I am? I'm in Philly. Like, where do we go? So I don't know exactly how he did his homework on that, but he instilled it in me. Once I got to upstate New York to grad school, I have no money. I can barely afford to feed myself at home. This is my aspiration. This is what I want to do. Move to New York in 1996 and I'm reading all these things. And eventually I start to hear about this restaurant Union Pacific and I'm going to other places. And they're like, this guy, he's just doing something different than everybody else is. He is a chef's chef. He is doing this cuisine that can't even explain it. But you were sort of on everybody's lips. And I'm like, okay, knew I couldn't afford it. And eventually I came in for restaurant week lunch. I still remember it and remember how it made me feel. And I've told you the story. I was dating a guy at the time. I wouldn't shut up after the meal. And I was like, this was so incredible. And this texture and this urchin dish and this, you know, the way it was with citrus and zest and stuff. We're on the train and he's like, why does everything have to be the best with you? Can anything just be fine? Can it be whatever? And he was like, trying Red to, flag. Red yeah, flag. he was trying to ding me for that. We broke up pretty soon after because I was like, if he can't appreciate a meal like this, like, but the thing is, this all goes around to the fact that at this time, the you that I'm hearing about is like this really precise chef who is taking these chances 
experiences in doing this innovative food and you're doing that, how are you feeling at this particular point, late 90s, early 2000s, like when you're doing Union Pacific? It was an interesting time in New York for food and chefs. There was an abundance of people who were interested in dining really well and also in American chefs. For the first time, American chefs had a little platform of their own thanks to people like Tom Colicchio and Tom Valenti and other chefs of really high caliber who had just sort of seceded from the European old guard and created their own restaurants. And also investors at the time were interested in supporting young American chefs and giving them a lot of freedom and wanted the restaurants to be adventurous and of note and not just a safe sort of copycat menu that you can see during times like this where interest rates are high and money issues are looming large. People tend to go back to safe menus then have the same 12 items on the menu. And you'll see that now if you walk around New York and you'll notice that everybody has the big burger and the burrata and the tuna tartare and the 12 ounce strip steak <laughs> that's on every menu now. But we didn't have a steak on the menu or chicken on the menu back then. We I was given a lot of freedom. My partners and investors were foodies themselves. They were fans of chefs and cuisine. They were fans of what was happening in Europe and Asia. And they wanted to come to their restaurant and eat crazy food that was really innovative and pushed all the boundaries out. And so I was lucky to have had that restaurant at that time for that reason. And at the same time, there was not an abundance, but relative enough young, interested people who wanted to come in and do whatever it took to learn these skills. Remember, you couldn't Google any of this stuff back then. So you had to learn it all in real life and you had to pay your dues, so to speak, to learn how to use a sous vide machine and what circulation was and what spherification, all these little tricks and tips that we take for granted now that we can learn by watching endless amounts of videos. You had to learn from another human being back then. So getting into a really good place that employed these techniques and worked with great ingredients was super important for anyone who was serious. So that sort of intersection of events, people, places, things made it a very um, fertile time for chefs to aspire to do great things and experiment a lot and hang out on the limb of trees, which is how I felt I lived my life in that kitchen. I was always on the limb. Half of the time I was sawing myself off and the other <laughs> half, you know, I had friends supporting me. It helps stretch your imagination, your ability, it helps get you to a place where you can provide a new and exciting kind of flavor or combination of ingredients and techniques that even the hardened New York diner, which is who we had eating at Union Pacific, felt like, oh, wow, this is new. This is interesting. This is different. So that's a hard needle to thread, too, though, because you had both the audience of New York eaters and diners and stuff like that, but the critics also really liked you. And more importantly, your peers really appreciated this because they were all talking you up and stuff. And you have this. So what's the pressure like at that point? So this brings me back to the conversation about how serious things were back then. Because back then, if you were serious about food and your main focus was cooking, that was more than sufficient to earn you the respect of your peers, your employees, your investors, and the critics. It's a completely different world now. And now I think it's much harder to thread the needle because who knows what it takes these days to earn the respect of people in the community because it's not really food alone. It's so many other things. So I almost wonder which time is more difficult. Is it now? Is it back then? The amount of seriousness about food today 
I feel like needs to be measured against all these other issues that the restaurant industry is tackling. So it seems more difficult these days or right now to thread the needle than it did back then. There was a safety in being serious about food and treating your career almost like you were part of some sort of core of chefs that even though we weren't officially a group or a core of any kind, we all sort of had the same ambition and came from the same very regimented background and sort of knew what was expected of us. So the pressure is high, but you can always take comfort in cooking, being in the kitchen, being ambitious and serious and earnest. Earnest was very important, being an earnest student of cuisine and earnestly appreciating the ingredients and the purveyors and the farmers and the employees and the customers. You know, if you were really earnest and a little bit innocent about it, but at the same time, very serious and very focused, the pressure felt intense, but you always knew that you were doing the right thing. And a lot of people didn't come through that okay, because what was really good for your business and what was really good for that broke a lot of people. And I know now that restaurants are changing in some deep and fundamental ways to really help preserve the well-being of the people who work there. It seems like there's constantly that tension between kind of a very fickle dining population, getting the quality out there that people want to, and also what it's going to be physically and emotionally doing to people. And I, and I know that there's a really inherent tension in there because we've all seen that kind of toll that takes. You're a person who's had a long career and I've seen you in different phases of it. So in Union Pacific Day, and then later on, you're at a place where all of a sudden a lot of that culture has shifted and people are trying to figure out where that is. Do you think that tension can be resolved in a way that is going to keep people who work there safe, is going to please a dining public, is going to keep a chef creatively satisfied? Like, what does that look like for you? I think that's a question of the ages, right? A restaurant is a labor of love more often than not, and it's always subsidized by somebody or something, and always the owner is doing more than they should, more than is healthy, more than is psychologically sound to keep it running and, and make sure customers are happy. That's always true. There's always a number of employees that are doing more than makes sense on paper. There's always a number of purveyors that are doing more than makes sense on paper. There's something about a restaurant that just makes you feel very generous with your time, your energy, your spirit. Very few people get into the restaurant business because they think it's a great business model and they feel like they can balance all the numbers on the spreadsheet and make it work as a pure business while at the same time being fair and equitable to all members of the community and paying everyone every penny that they deserve and not getting a couple of favors here and there from employees. I think more than ever, it's become very, very hard mix of challenges, conundrums that all need to be solved at the same time. I don't know that it's gotten any easier. I think in many ways it's gotten more difficult. I live in New York where the business climate is most hostile I've ever seen it. So I think the restaurant as a business idea, probably not something that should be thought of as a business idea. And I know there's going to be a lot of people in the industry who would disagree with me because there are some that really do a great job of running it as a business. That's not why most of the people get into this business. We do this because we love to cook for people. We love to make people feel good. And those values don't align oftentimes with what's on a spreadsheet and the math. You know, A lot of us are doing it for the purpose of being good to our public or to the public and the people in our neighborhood or the people in our city 
And we like that. We like it like that. We are generous people by nature. We love to feed and comfort and nurture people. And that's not a great business. And I, I don't think that'll ever change. I don't know that there's enough formulas on a spreadsheet, enough mechanization, enough robotics to completely remove the humanity from the restaurant business. We are a borderline public service. I often wonder if we shouldn't be thought of as a nonprofit public service in 90% of the cases, because that's what it comes down to in the end. I mean, a very successful restaurant is only operating at 10, 12, 13% profit. That's when everything is perfect and there isn't a hurricane or who knows what is coming next. Okay, go deep into Rocco land. What is this dream restaurant that you would run if there weren't the factors of like liquor laws, if there weren't real estate costs, if there weren't these things? What is the restaurant you'd want to run now? I have so many ideas and so many thoughts come to mind, but the one that keeps popping up, and I have this conversation a lot, is a counter where I can cook anything I want for enough people to make it sustainable, but not too many people. So not thousands of people, but you know, hundreds of people, but a counter set up so that I could talk to guests and guests could talk to me. They could watch me cook for them and I could serve them directly. I always felt the loss of the relationship from the pass in the kitchen to the table. So when a chef prepares something, they sort of have their hands on it until it hits the pass. And then once it leaves the kitchen, you don't really know what's happening. And then you have to rely on customers to tell you what happened afterwards. And it's not always the most reliable information. I would love to just watch the process go from products come in, I cook them, I serve them to someone, I watch them, enjoy them. More like how it would be at home. When I entertain at home, I really enjoy it because I get to interact with people as they're eating the food that I make. And that's just so fun. And I get to hear their reaction, good or bad, and see whether or not they're having a good time. At home, for me, it's very casual. I think if you could duplicate the sort of casualness of spirit that you have at home in a restaurant, that would be a huge win, but still remain serious about the food somehow and split the difference a little bit. I still love peeling the onion and heating up the pan. It's still my favorite part of the whole thing. Is it true every plate of risotto at your last restaurant (laughs) you personally had to touch? Is that true? I'm afraid to admit it, but it's true. Yeah. So (laughs) I built the pass so that it was a box and I was in the middle of the box with one other person. And we did that so that all the plates could be visually and visually checked and tasted if needed before going to the customer. So yeah, it's true. So what are you seeing out there in restaurants that's making you really happy right now? I'm seeing a huge explosion in what's happening with beverages. A lot of culinary techniques are being applied to beverages. There's now saline solutions, a part of everyday bar setup. They're using sous vide and clarification and all kinds of very cool techniques that we develop in the kitchen to make drinks. So Drinks are becoming more culinary, which I think is extremely cool. And more important than that, it's not only about nerdy bartenders doing cool things, but customers are really appreciating what is the final product or what is the result of all that insane nerdism. I'm seeing a lot of small places open again. Small proprietor-run places is a great sign of a reawakening, in my opinion, of a rebirth. I think during the pandemic, we saw a lot of places collapse into larger companies and large companies opened many, many more places because they were able to take advantage of or exploit the real estate opportunities. And usually when that happens, there's a lot of identity loss and a lot of homogenization. But I think we're seeing the unraveling of that a little bit, which is cool. I think if in New York City or anywhere in the country, you can get away with opening a 20-seat restaurant, and that seems like a viable business model, that's a great thing. It means that there is at least one very passionate person in there 
trying to figure out something really cool and that customer will benefit from. So with all the things that you've done, it's like you also write books and you do TV and you do all of this stuff. What are you proudest of? So cooking and writing are probably my two favorite activities. When I was a kid getting into this business, I didn't know any of this was going to be possible. I thought, honestly, I'd be opening up number 10 cans for 20 years. I was very happy just being an employee. So I'm really grateful that I get to do all these other things. But writing cookbooks remains really, really tough, but fun. I'm just putting the finishing touches on my next book, Everyday Delicious, which is now coming out in March. But it's fun for a lot of the same reasons as running a restaurant in that you get to create something for people to experience, enjoy. In this case, they enjoy it at home and they make it themselves. Thanks to internet and Instagram and Facebook, I get to hear from them and I hear from them a lot about how much they enjoy the recipe or if the recipe didn't work, which is very satisfying. Oh, and there's going to be a recipe from it in our October issue. Very excited about this. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. My stoner fried rice. (laughs) And it's really, really good. So when I tell you things like David Chang said to tell you that you changed the game, you've had this impact. I've been frantically looking in the background for this question that Shota Nakajima had for you, and I can't find it right now. He's like, ah, Jeff Rocco. And he's somebody he never got to eat at Union Pacific, but he had such esteem for you that he like almost got nervous. And he was telling me that getting to interact with you was something he could not believe on a TV show. It meant so much to him because the level of esteem he had, like I watched him on the same kind of screen I'm looking at you now. He was just like, oh my God, you were such an influence on him, on David Chang, who does not give praise up for free. <laughs> and Dave, when he says something, he means it. Are you able to hear this about yourself and accept it? Like, are you able to feel it and acknowledge that? Does that sink into you? My first reaction was surprise. When you said David Chang, I was like, can you say that name again? I want to make sure. <laughs> People like us, I think you're pretty similar in this way as well. I think our psychological makeup is so similar that we're probably having a mind meld right now. You could answer this question for me. Yep, which is why I'm making you answer it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) First, I don't think it's true. I go through this whole process. I don't think it's real. I think you made it up probably somewhere in the back of my mind, but I know you haven't. And then I'm flattered and very grateful. And then I wonder... Why? I don't even know if I've cooked for David Chang in Pacific or anywhere. You obviously know that compliments are an issue for me. And yeah, so I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But thank (laughs) you for telling me. I really appreciate it. It does mean a lot to know Shoda and David both feel that way. I love them both. And I think they're extraordinary chefs. What would you say to that 10-year-old Rocco who's opening the number 10 cans in the restaurant? What do you want to tell him? What do you want to prepare him for? Oh, man, have more fun. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to be that serious. All the chefs that are very highly regarded for being great chefs ultimately are extremely fun to be around and so nice and so generous and so straight, like in terms of how they deal with people. With Nobu, there is always going to be one reaction. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to do the right thing. He's hilarious. He's super funny, super generous. He's a mensch. He's the nicest guy in the world. And that's true for so many of these great chefs that we all love. And so internalizing a little bit of that and being less serious about acquiring the knowledge, it would have been great to know back then there was going to be Google at some point. Google <laughs> so, and anti-anxiety meds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If someone said to me back then, by the way, at some point in the very near future, Every piece of information that you seek will be available to you 
real time so you don't have to worry about it. You're going to know everything you want to know because my curiosity and my appetite for knowledge was so ridiculous and it was never enough. You know, it was never enough. I'm sure I know a hundred things that I'll never use and didn't have to worry about. But so relax, have more fun. It's not as serious as you think it is. And hey, it's going to work out. You're going to get to be a rock <laughs> Exactly. You're going to actually be the chef you want to be. It makes me so joyful to know that you are you and you are out here and that I am still geeking out that I get to talk to you because like, you know, my esteem for you. Definitely. Thank you so much, Kat. You've been a wonderful friend. Oh my God. Back at you. And question I ask everybody, what to you does a tinfoil swan mean? To me, it's the most elegant and artistic takeout container ever. Tinfoil <laughs> swan is what we made to give people a container before there was to-go containers. They used to walk out of a restaurant with this massive sculpture of tinfoil that resembled a bird of some kind. And I've made many of them. I'm old enough to remember where that was the only takeout container. And so at the end of every banquet, every wedding, every bar mitzvah, you'd see dozens of people walk out of this event with a tinfoil swan. So for me, it symbolizes a really good time, the tacky 70s and 80s, a slightly less technical era where there wasn't a container for everything. You know, you had to improvise a little. I made tinfoil swans as recently as a week ago. It's part of my everyday life. That's the coolest thing ever. Let's bring it back. In addition to Rocco's upcoming pop-up, Tinfoil Swan, <laughs> where else can people find you and what you're doing? What do you want people to know about where to experience the beauty of you? Instagram is where everybody finds out everything these days. Instagram's a good place. The next book is called Everyday Delicious. It's food that I sort of became re-enamored with during the pandemic, like stoner fried rice and chicken parm <laughs> and shrimp franchise and chopped cheese, that sort of thing. And that's it. That's it. And having seen a preview of it, this is going to be one of your dirty stain cookbooks in the kitchen. I thank you for your time. I just appreciate you on a million levels. And thank you for being part of the food and wine family. Thank you, Kat. I think you're the best too. You know that. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Rocco Despirito. Be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast, leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. I would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. And when I say I... I mean, our fantastic production team, Lottie Le Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for my conversation with Mater Joffrey. Take care of yourselves until the next time.